Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. Today I'm sharing the mic with Janelle Green and Janelle's a life and relationship coach who's on a mission to save marriages and heal families from generational trauma and she's known for helping couples return to their really best parts of their relationship when they've been nearing a path of departure from it. So I think that's really quite incredible. Having gone through my own very tumultuous divorce that speaks near and dear my heart in some regards. And Janelle also loves talking about her own marriage and how she's really come into this coaching career from a career in corporate America, a very successful salesperson and making that transition so she could live the life that she wants and really become who the fuck she is. So welcome to the show, Janelle. Thanks so much, Nikki. Love it. I'm excited. I'm so happy to have you here. I feel like our first conversation was so enlightening and it's one of those things where it's it speaks to me in so many ways because you've taken the non-traditional path after taking the traditional path, right? Like we kind right. of find ourselves on the straight and narrow and we end up just doing the things that we feel like fit because that's what we were told to do. And so one of the things that we had talked about at first was really how you landed in your coaching career and leaving corporate America and how transformational just making that decision was for you. And I recall from our conversation, you telling me that it was right after receiving a fairly high accolade for your contributions to the business that you were working at and walking away still feeling really unfulfilled that led you to a place where you wanted to explore further who you were and what you wanted out of life. Could you share a little bit about how you got to that point where you realized that you needed something more or different than where you were at? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like where I want to start is cleaning a toilet when I was about seven years old, maybe eight, but my parents used to have this janitorial business. And whenever we didn't have school, we would go and help. And at the time, my dad was in charge of four restaurants. So we would get up at two in the morning and we would go to these restaurants and my job was to clean the toilets. And I remember thinking to myself, I never want to do this as a job. And I think it was that moment where I decided that I was going to do anything and everything to be something more. And not that my dad was very proud of his work, but I knew that my parents left the Philippines to come to Canada so that we had a better life. And as the eldest, I feel like a lot of that pressure was put on me. And so my entire life has always been about achievement and how I got love from my parents was through my achievement. And so yeah. when I got good, good grades, it was like my mom would tell everyone and she would they would give me money and they would just treat me like the golden child. And so throughout my entire life, I've always been this go getter. And it's shown you that the reward for that work is the attention, affection and yeah. praise that you desire, that you seek. And when that's your yeah. caregivers providing that to you, it trains you. 
Yeah, but it's interesting because even as a coach, I'm looking at this now going, as much as I appreciate that, it also has been an issue for me because now as an adult, now I'm, you know, dealing with uh, the agreement of others. Yeah. What I'm up to in my life. And is this okay? How do you guys feel about my divorce? When I really had to just go inwards and just trust myself. So I think as much as the intention was was amazing and, and I turned out pretty great, there's still some challenges that kind of upbringing creates. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that a lot of people face when we had initially been introduced, you had said something around being sort of a perfectionist and having this mentality of just needing to people please. And I think you're completely right. I know you're completely right because I've not only done the work myself to try to get out of that habit of people pleasing and the kind of codependency that goes with that, but also just learning about the psychology of, you know, you're, when you're so young and you're in those developmental years, you're legitimately, and to your point, no, no fault to our parents for doing the things that they did and trying to provide that life for us and that encouragement, because I understand sort of the incentive behind things. Right. And it's coming from a place of love, but it teaches us that part of our value is associated with that. And it makes it really hard to decouple that as an adult. Absolutely. I work with couples, uh, with people all the time who can't make decisions for themselves. Yeah. So I actually had a client last week who she's been, her husband cheated on her and she'd been wanting to, um, you know, contemplating divorce for about two years. What kept her from making that decision was she was so afraid of what her mom would say and her friends would say And what would God say? And then this week she said, Janelle, I'm doing it. I told him I want a divorce. Good for her. Because I've been there. And that moment is really empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, and and what surprised her was that everybody was actually really supportive. Well, to be honest with you, I don't know, because you've been through a divorce as well, right? So I feel like part of that is you're in the moment, you know that your relationship isn't good for you or isn't right for you. Sometimes they can be amicable, but mine wasn't. And I feel like I knew for so long that I was in the wrong relationship. Everybody around me knew for so long that I was in the wrong relationship. It was like, they almost could be nothing but supportive because they were like, oh my God, finally, like, thank God you made the decision that you made. Finally, like we can actually tell you how much we want to support you in this decision that you're making. You know, we, we put so much pressure on ourselves to like not fail at marriage. And it's like, that's not what it's about. If you aren't happy, don't do it. Don't be there. Don't stay. If you're not happy or if you're not getting what you need in your relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm sorry I didn't answer your question straight, but I, my brain just went to No, like, I love that though. I'm totally fine with detour. Okay, cool, cool. Important. I'm just it's like, important. I, yeah, because I feel like I need to create context in like where I came from. Like my mom came to Canada two years before I was born with $500 and she was a nanny for some rich white people, sorry, <laughs> rich white family in the, the rich area of Vancouver. And then my she sponsored my dad to come to get married here and they had nothing. And so there was this expectation, I think, especially as the eldest to really fulfill their dreams. Yeah. So, right? so really it's like a first generation child. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So here, I so fast forward. So I'm in corporate and I worked for a really large payroll company and 
I'm very competitive. I've always been competitive my whole life. So sales was a really great place for me. And, you know, I love people. I love talking. So it was great. But I feel like as I started to come around 40, when I started to hit 40, I started to feel this like rumbling in my soul. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was. I just knew that I was doing what I thought I should be doing. And yet I wasn't fulfilled. So it took probably another year until I really got, okay, this is what's going on. And what was going on was I had realized that as much as I loved this life, okay, so here's my life. I am winning free trip. I want a free trip to Bermuda for seven days with my husband. It was like a $12,000 trip. And then the year after that, I want a second trip. And that was to Rome. So you would think someone like that would be like, super stoked and oh my god my life is amazing and to an extent it was but there was just this part of me that was like there's gotta be more and why am I not more excited than I am right now and what I discovered was I felt like I hadn't been living my purpose and what I mean by that is you know when you're young it's all about achievement making lots of money and then you get there and then you're like huh This doesn't feel like the way I thought it would feel. There's a point of diminishing returns. And I remember, so I used to work in HR tech for a while. And the moment that I can tell you very clearly my perspective shifted on things was one of my best friends was the head of performance management at a company. And she was telling me about how they were doing work to try to engage with a platform that helps create purpose profiles, that helps Mm -hmm. you understand what makes people feel fulfilled when they're Mm. working. Mm -hmm. So you can have a more diverse set of thinking and the way that people take action then is more compatible rather than, you know, group think or just like empire building within these businesses. Yeah. And I took this purpose profile and it was, I'm somebody who wants to make a social global impact essentially. Like I care about building community, but at a larger scale and I want to make change that proliferates. And so ergo the podcast, I guess. Yeah. But it's one of those things where to just even understand that about myself, yeah, it was like shortly thereafter that I really pressed the gas on this for myself because I realized like I knew my purpose was to connect with people and I'm not going to do that as a product manager for a software company. It's just not like I can do that individually with people that I work with on a day-to-day basis. And it's nice. And I appreciate that, but it's not fulfilling in a way that gives me a sense of personal gratitude that like you want to be able to live with. Yeah, absolutely. And I was selling software as well. So I thought I've always known one of my greatest gifts is the amount of love that I have to give. I think it's the way I was brought up, especially in a lot of families that have been raised in third world countries is very much that deep love. And there's not this say materialistic, but it's just, they're just, we're just different. But I remember thinking to myself, going fast forward into the last day of my life, or even just after I've left this world and I've gone to the next, and I am, you know, I'm Catholic. So I imagine myself standing at the pearly gates of heaven and St. Peter saying to me, Janelle, what did you do with your life? And at, up at this, up until this point, all I could think of was, well, I sold software. I made lots of money. I mean, I donated a lot of money. I gave a lot of it, but that wasn't sweat and tears. That's just like, that's just money. But there was a part of me that I felt like I wasn't giving that I had so much to give. 
And so then I just sat back and I started to really ask myself if I could create a job, invent a job that was just for me and that used all of my talent and all of my experience and all of just my personality, what would that look like? And that's how I decided I wanted to become a coach. Well, and it's interesting because there's so many different types of coaches, right? So Mm -hmm. did you immediately know the direction you wanted to go with it? Not really. You know, most coaches, we start with like, where have we been? Where have we overcome something huge in our lives? And that, and therefore we can show others how to get on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it kind of started with helping women who are going through a midlife crisis, figuring out what is it that they want? Who are they at the end of the day? But then I felt like, that's so boring. (laughs) That's what everybody's doing. I felt like everybody I met, every coach I met was kind of doing the same thing. And I really wanted to do something special. And so I was listening to this podcast and she said, coach, if you don't know what to coach, think about what people ask you about. And I was like, oh, that's easy. People want to know from me, how did I, first of all, how did I score this man that I got? And then secondly, how is it that we're able, even after 17 years, that we can't even keep our hands off each other? And that we have this level of playfulness and communication and friendship after all of these years. Now, mind you, we don't have kids. So I think it makes it a lot easier for us. Well, to stay connected in like the deeper personal ways, because there's not as much of the distraction. Exactly. Obviously, like you're kind of, you're distributing your love more broadly instead of having sort of that focused attention on, on a single person. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where I started. And I remember there was this moment in time where I said to my husband, man, if I could just squeeze your essence into a bottle and sell it, I would be a billionaire. (laughs) You know that? Yeah. But then I thought, well, obviously I can't. So what's the next best thing? And so, you know, a lot of what I teach and a lot of what I talk about with my clients, I think why it's so effective is I'm not just talking shit about here's the thing I learned about coaching and you know what I mean? Like going through the motions. It's really from a place of, Hey, I walk this talk. I've been, I know what it's like from a shitty place. And I know what it's like from like this amazing, like what kind of place. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. And I can see why I was the way I was and what it, what had to occur for me to become the kind of person that would attract the kind of man that is, was actually good for me because up until then I was attracting really shitty men. The ones that would cheat, the ones that would lie to me about their age, but everything. And, you know, there was just this moment where I kind of stepped back during my divorce. And I thought to myself, why, what is it about me (laughs) that I keep attracting these kind of guys, the guys that my parents would never approve of Mm -hmm. that would usually end up cheating on me or like breaking my heart. And I, if we're going to be really like straight and frank here, I hope your audience doesn't mind. Like I've had boyfriends who've broken up with me, like right after sex. I'm like, who does that? But not great people. (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, there's something about me that has me continue this cycle. And so that is where my work started going inwards and doing a whole bunch of seminars and really doing the work for myself. And in doing the work for myself, I was like, wow, this coaching thing is really powerful. I want to do that for other people. So I'm curious, did you 
Have you always been a really introspective person in that way? I mean, to be very driven, I think that, you know, a lot of times you kind of set your sight on something and you go after it. I know you can absolutely be that way because I've been that way and also be introspective, but you had made the point about having these defining moments in your life that really forced you to look in the mirror and be like, I need to be accountable for what I'm doing, what I'm contributing to my own life that's leading me down the path to these things that aren't good for me, whether they're relationships or jobs or whatever it might be. So what would you say was the turning point for you to really be like, I need to look at myself right now? Yeah. Well, here's the interesting part. You know, my whole life, I've always been different. And as a child, I always felt like being different was bad. Yeah. You know, I was super smart. So I would get teased. I skipped a grade. I got bullied and I was, I'm four foot 11 and I had asthma and I had glasses and I had braces. So I was just like the perfect target for that, you know? And so I think part of me had to kind of shut off, you know, this sort of the the emotional part of me and then going into this very masculine role called sales for 15 years Again, I had to learn to grow thick skin, to to get to be okay with being rejected, but I almost felt like I had to become someone else. And I think that's where the the point was where I'm like, I'm tired of being somebody else. I'm tired of putting on this this uniform and this mask that says, hey, I'm great all the time. And the impact of that was that nobody actually knew me. I kept everybody at arm's length because I really didn't want people to see how fucked up I was and nor did I even want to admit how fucked up I was because I had to hold up this thing called being the good girl perfectionist straight a student yes ma'am perfect child gold you know what I mean like it was so exhausting exhausting so going through my divorce was I think the first time that shit hit the fan where it was like oh the good girl is actually not the good girl we thought she was Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, that you had that experience at that point. So can you tell me a little bit about how that experience of exiting a marriage impacted you in the way that you showed up in the world, maybe not professionally, but just personally, because those things do, as you said, like they, they change the way you think of things. They change the way you see yourself, particularly if you're trying to really discover what it is that you need. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be really straight with you guys. I don't share this a lot with people, but when I was in my first marriage, it was pretty bad. I was very lonely, very lonely. I went into this marriage. That's what I teach about to my clients is all about, you know, setting expectations and actually discussing that. I had an expectation that this marriage was going to be just like my parents. They were going to do everything together, going to go to church together, going to have dinner together. Everything was together, Right. And what I married into was with someone who wasn't about that. It was about him going to work, me staying home and being playing housewife. And that's not who I was. I was like a career woman. I was making six figures. I could barely cook. My, I lived with my mom till I was like, till I got married pretty much. So I didn't really have, didn't have that sort of domestic part of me. I've always been, I wasn't one of those kids growing up. I was like, someday I want to be a mom and let me hold my dolls. And like, yeah, same. <laughs> that wasn't me. I was like, hey, what am I going to learn next? Where's the encyclopedia? I want, like, I was just, that was who I was. But I think it was, so when I was in my marriage, going back to that, I fell in love with someone. 
And it wasn't expected. It was someone, this is my husband, by the way, who I'm talking about. It was someone that I worked with, someone who I was just so ashamed of this marriage not working out. And I decided to talk to someone who barely knew me, who lived on the other side of the country. We'd never met. He was just a work colleague who was a really, really great listener. And next thing I knew, I was falling in love with someone I'd never met. So I wouldn't say that I left. We were already having problems. I wasn't like I left him for him. No, I understand. It was kind of a little bit overlap. So it, it did make things a little bit tricky and messy, but that's the way it rolled. And in a way, I think Mike saved me because I may have stayed there a little bit longer because for the fear of looking bad to my family, you know, yeah, being Catholic and then going through this divorce. And so it was this moment where I just had to be really straight with my family. I'm like, I don't want to be with him. I want to be with him. Do you feel like part of that message that you, I think first need to acknowledge yourself and then could acknowledge more to your family and friends as well is I'm not happy here. This yeah. could make me happy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was in tears almost every single day and I just had someone who just didn't care. He was just very self-centered and yeah, I just, it wasn't what I had. I remember thinking to myself, Lord, this is not what I signed up for, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? And I think, but I, in hindsight, I think that I chose to be in that marriage for the wrong reasons. I think a lot of us go into that. And it was like, part of it was like, the clock is ticking. I'm 24. My mom got married at 24. Part of it was, I don't want to be alone anymore. I just want to settle down, not date. I was so tired of dating. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. to get out of the game. And I think part of it was also just my own insecurity of just unable to just be alone by myself and love myself. Like I felt so unworthy. Yeah. And I think a lot of that started when I was nine. So when I was nine, my dad, as, as happy as my family, my, my parents were, somehow my dad cheated on my mom with my mom's best friend who lived in our basement. And she was like my big sister for, she was probably there for a few years. And then as soon as she moved out, she started to pursue my dad. And so next thing I know, my mom's telling us that my dad's leaving. And we're like, what? And I'm daddy's girl. So I remember watching him leave, going down the stairs. I remember it was nighttime. It was, there was snow on the ground. And I remember watching him going down the stairs and seeing this brown car, which I didn't recognize, waiting for him and him going in. And I remember standing there and just tears. And now, like, looking back, what I decided as a nine-year-old in that moment was three things. Number one, I'm unlovable. Number two, I can't trust people. And number three, everybody I love will leave me. And so as I was doing this work in my 20s, that's what I discovered that I created in that nine-year-old, in that moment as a nine-year-old, and how that those decisions that we make subconsciously continue to run the show until we discover them. And that's why, to me, coaching is so powerful, because I would have never figured that out without the guidance of someone who could really help me navigate through, okay, what are all the patterns? Where did this all come from? Mm -hmm. We think it's like, oh yeah, it just sort of happened. And, you know, we just don't trust people. It's like, no, no, no. This started way back before your marriage. This is like 
think childhood, right? Think parents. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I feel like that's where everything starts. So that's where my healing began. And so Mm -hmm. once I really started to work on myself and started to heal that, now I could love myself enough to say, no, this is the kind of man I want. You know what? I do want the fairy tale relationship and damn it, I'm going to have it. If I can't find it, then I'd rather just be single. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally can empathize with that because the week my now wife and I um, realized that we were at a point that we liked each other and wanted to be more than friends in therapy, like two days before she acknowledged this to me and we had a conversation about it. I said that in feeling needed, I felt wanted in my last relationship. I was with somebody who was deeply traumatized and also narcissistic. And I think those typically go hand in hand, right? Um, So speaking to like the effects of trauma on children, right? There's a lot of stuff that I believe happened that she told me. And I think there's a lot of situations that I was put in that were dangerous and concerning for me. And I don't know how much of what I was told was the truth. And it required literally my life exploding um, to force me to ask the questions about why I put up with it for so long. Because I look back, Janelle, it's crazy. I have in my like notes app on my phone, the amount of times I wrote notes to myself that conveyed that I was so aware of what was going on and I wasn't okay with it. Mm-hmm. versus the years it took to acknowledge it and to finally leave. It's like we stay so committed, as you said, to those subconscious parts of ourself that we tolerate abuse because of it. And we also sacrifice our happiness and our worthiness because of it. And, you know, not everyone who's unhappy is in an abusive situation, but at the same time, like, if you don't feel like you are worthy, then you will compromise what it is that you know that you deserve. And I didn't even understand until I was in therapy for probably three years at this point that I had always had this really subtle self-loathing that just like existed just below the surface. I was not somebody who, you know, was super emo and like maybe in high school a little bit, but like, (laughs) um, but it's like, Generally, I'm a happy person and I love my friends and family and I, you know, I'm social and things like that. But I realized how uncomfortable it made me to say I liked myself. And then when I got to a point where I could actually say that I loved myself, I was like, oh, this is actually, I get it now, you know, and it's not just, oh no, you need to love yourself. And it sounds corny and you don't want to like actually say it. And I remember when you and I first spoke that you had actually had like a very pivotal moment yourself where you realized like you needed to focus on self-love and how important that was for you. Could you share a little bit more about that experience for yourself as well? Because I think it really leads into what we're talking about and really kind of gives you that 360 degree view of like, why is my life what my life is? (laughs) Yeah. I think to be honest, part of the struggle with self-love, especially for more masculine, high achieving women is we have such high expectations of ourselves. You know, I started to compete in dance when I was four. I started to do World Conservatory piano exams at seven. So I've always been like expecting so much of myself and others. And I felt like others expected it of me. But, you know, sometimes when I would fail, especially as a new new business owner, I could hear the voices in my head going, 
Chevelle, you suck and you're a loser. What are you doing? And you should know better. And I'm like, oh my God, there's my dance teacher. Oh my God. And so I feel like I had to learn how to quiet those voices and show myself compassion. And I think up until that point, I had never done that because I've always been, but if I give myself compassion, then I'm going to take my foot off the gas pedal. And I don't want that. So I'm just going to keep beating myself like a donkey or whatever with a whip and just just keep pushing, even though every fiber of me is like crying and just wants to just rest or take a break. But I feel like, again, our subconscious mind, when we're at that young age and we're constantly told that you're great and that you could be better and where's those A's and you're amazing and you should be at top. It's so hard to just allow yourself to just be human and to be able to be okay with failing. So I feel like this whole thing about failing, learning to fail and being okay with failing is a new thing for me. It's, and it's crazy because I can feel every fiber of me not wanting to fail, but this is so great to talk about because this is how we are in relationships. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And you said something earlier, which I loved. You said, you know, about use the word tolerate. And I feel like we tolerate the shittiness of our life for a couple of reasons. This is my philosophy. It's because the the option, the alternative is scary and Mm -hmm. it's unknown and it's uncomfortable. And there, again, is another risk of failure. And so we would rather stay where we are in this, I like it called the shitty swamp, because at least we know it. We Better the devil it. you know. Exactly. And this is, for me, it's so disheartening. And it makes me so sad when I meet people who are clearly so unhappy, so miserable, but they're just unwilling to take a new action. It's a big commitment too, right? Because it starts to, as we've been talking about the whole time is, it forces you to make different decisions than you're used to making. And when you have to make different decisions and you can't know the outcome, the ambiguity is threatening your safety, right? This is where I love that you approach these things from a neurological scientific level too, because I'm equally invested in learning new things. So with mental health and just overall psychology, I became really aware of the importance of understanding why we're doing what we're doing and being able to unravel that in a way that doesn't, basically we exist in survival mode when we're faced with trauma. And if you are consistently faced with trauma, you are going to continue to live in survival mode and you are going to feel like your baseline survival mode is your actual way of life. And it's Mm -hmm. so sickening to look at it in retrospect, because to your point, when I was in this relationship, the amount of just consistent ongoing trauma that was happening was, it made it so hard for me to even just tackle one healing journey before the next thing was happening. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was out of it, it was like, I didn't even understand what it could feel like to be at peace anymore. Like I had forgotten because I'd been with this person for over a decade and it's, oh my gosh, the other day I was just sitting outside and I was looking over at the side of my yard and I just thought, it's really nice that my brain is quiet and my body is at peace because it's not my reptilian brain responding to abstract threats. It's 
coming to a place of understanding that I don't need to feel threatened by something that is unknown, or I don't need to anticipate something and worry about it preemptively because I'm being irrationally anxious because of my trauma response to things. Now, granted, there are still moments and I have to talk myself off that ledge, but it's a process and it starts with really knowing yourself. Yeah, I think it, yes, it starts with knowing yourself and paying attention Mm -hmm. to what's actually going on in your mind and in your body. And I feel like when I meet clients for the first time, they don't know how to tap into that. You're totally right. You're totally right. Because I feel like I said to my wife, sorry for interjecting here. It's just, I'm excited about this because you're spot on. (laughs) It's like, she would always say, I don't understand what you mean when you say you feel it in your body. Where do you feel in your body? And I'm like, okay. When you respond to something, your body is sending a signal. I guarantee it. it. You have to tune in, but it means that you have to step away from the analytical side of your emotions and step into, to your point, that physiological piece of it, where it's like, for me, my anxiety lives like right here in the chest. Um, mm. And it's like when I was super I'm right anxious, here in my belly. Yeah. And it's like, you, I would feel this like gripping, like it felt like, oh my God, my, I'm going to have a heart attack. That's what that felt like. And so I think if you, especially if you're not exposed to something that creates such a heavy anxiety or trauma response, I think it could be harder to tune into because it's not as prominent, but it's like our bodies are sending all the signals that we need to know. So I'd love to hear how you got to the place where you were really understanding that more. And when you realized that was part of what could help you transform. To be honest, reading a lot of books. Yeah. Uh, book, yeah. I, there's, but there's one book that I would, that is all about this and it's called breaking the habit of being yourself. Nice. Yeah. It's such a, yeah, it's written by, it's all about neuroscience. He really talks about stress responses and dopamine and the chemical reactions. And I love it because when you're overly emotional, but you're also an overthinker like me, having someone put into perspective going, Oh, when you feel that thing, that's just the chemical from your brain going into your body. So if you can stop that chemical from dripping down by being conscientious, then you don't have to actually go through that emotional, I like to call it emotional crazy town or emotional chaos. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, okay, that's what's happening. There's, okay, okay, got it. But I think it's just being able just to really listen, to be quiet enough, which we don't often allow ourselves to be quiet enough to just go, okay, what is going on in my body? What is going on in my head? Because normally it's your thoughts create your emotions. But what happens is when you go through trauma is that the emotions end up taking over the mind rather than the other. So now the master becomes the servant. Mm. That's how we get stuck in this vicious cycle because logically we know this thing is like, crazy and it doesn't make sense. And of course you're not a failure. Of course you're enough. But yet emotionally, our body is saying something different. And then the other thing I've been learning about is how a lot of our emotions often are actually ancestral and it actually gets carried into our DNA. And so there'll be these feelings of feeling unsafe. And I'm like, why do I feel unsafe? I've got a great home. I own my home. I've got a great husband. And yet I have this feeling of unsafety. So I've been working with energy healers to go, I'm like, oh, that's from seven generations ago on your mom's side. 
oh, okay, that makes sense. So I think it's just at the end of the day, it's I think giving ourselves some compassion, giving ourselves some slack, remembering we're human, and also looking at it from with some humor. I uh, laugh yeah. at myself all the time. I think we take ourselves so seriously. And when we can just laugh at ourselves, oh, look at that crazy thing I did. Oh, that stupid thing I just said. Then we're not getting, again, going back into those like vicious cycles of like guilt and shame and all this. I'm a bad person. I'm not good enough. I'm dumb. All these things that we tell ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to I want to speak to two things that you just said. The first I want to say, because I think it, it isn't as depthful as the second part, but when it comes to having that sense of humor, having that levity, the playfulness that you described with you and your husband, I could not agree more with you, Janelle. That's something my therapist consistently says is how important play is. But even just my whole life, my mom had such a great sense of humor and her ability to bring her wit into conversations or be self-deprecating. She would say the exact same thing. We take ourselves too seriously. Everybody's just on edge all the time. And why can't we just let ourselves be happy and be lighter? And when I think about that, it's like the moments that really tried me as a person, particularly when I was going through my divorce was actually right after my mom had passed away. And so I was in like arguably like the lowest point of my life. It was bad. And at the same time, because I had such a strong support system and my best friend, Jen, had gone through a divorce as well. And she said to me, you were here for me through mine. I'm going to be here for you through yours. And something that we consistently say when we talk to each other is, thank goodness that we have the ability to laugh even when we're having conversations about the shittiest moments of our lives, because you have to be able to appreciate what is still there, what is still good in your life, even when things are really bad. And having the ability to laugh, whether that is in the moment or in retrospect, looking back on some of those moments, it's just, I can't imagine not having those parts of my life during the hard times because it gave me, it, honestly, I feel like the levity gives you hope. Yeah, I would say that, as we're talking, my husband keeps popping into my mind. And I feel like that's why our relationship is what it is, is we don't hold on to anything. Yeah, of course we argue. Do you confront things quickly when you guys feel uncomfortable about things? Oh, yeah. There is nothing between us. And I yeah. think one of the things I've done really well at is creating a safe space. I think that's so important in marriage because if we're not a safe space for each other, where are we going to find that? Sure, we could find that in our friends, but there is a whole nother level when you're with your life partner. And if you can create that safe space for each other and know at the end of the day that you're always going to have each other's back, and if, even if you screw up, then you're not, there's no need to carry that baggage into the next day, week, year, month, whatever, right? So for me and my husband, like they're honestly, Nikki, there's nothing between us. And Listen. if there ever was anything, I'd be like, hey, you know what? That thing you did, yeah, don't do that. You're you're so spot on too with that. I mean, I know I keep saying that, but Nicole and I have been so transparent with each other, but we had to get through some moments of discomfort to get there because when you're still learning something, right? And we had a long distance relationship for a bit before we were able to meet in person. And so it was one of those things where once you're in person and now you have energies that are coinciding, cohabitating, you have to get used to the things that people do and how they behave. And 
I remember this one time, I think I've said it probably in other episodes when I've talked about a sort of conflict resolution overall, but I asked, you know, are you mad? And Nicole said to me, yes. And I remember thinking like, oh God, I wish I didn't. Like I, I had to ask because I can tell that she's mad at me, but I didn't want her to say yes. But if she is mad, then I needed her to say yes. And she's like, I didn't want to say it. I wanted to say no, because that was my instinct. But what we, because both of us are so obviously different energies when one of us is frustrated about something, there is no hiding it anyway. So it's like, unless you want the resentment to build, like you've got to confront the things that are, as you said, between you. And I think a lot of people, as you said, they're very uncomfortable with confronting that element of discomfort. And that's why a lot of couples have the same fight about different things, right? They never address the root issue or set the right expectations, as you said earlier. So then they're constantly in this, like this tedium of just back and forth minutia that doesn't really affect you, but then it compounds and creates resentment. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say to add to that, the ones that do communicate it, first of all, the one who communicates it often doesn't communicate it very tactfully, let's just say, right? It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Like literally, I find that a lot of people are not responsible for the way they speak. They just talk without really, without thinking about what they're saying. And then you, when you call them on, they're like, well, you know what I mean? It's like, no, no, no. But what you say and how you say it, it, it speaks volumes. It tells me how I should interpret what you're saying. Right, right. And I think a lot of times, what also happens is that the other person gets defensive. And then what ends up happening is they either interrupt or they get upset. And so now it's an, a full-on battle or they take it personally. And one of the things I teach my couples is that people are allowed to have whatever emotions they have, right? And it's not your job to fix that. Your job is to listen and to get communication. And if there's something to get responsible for, do that. But what most people do is the opposite. Mm -hmm. And so the other person doesn't feel heard. They feel often rejected. They feel misunderstood. And then all of a sudden, somehow they end up being the bad guy. So now we're no longer actually open to having honest conversations because we know how that's going to go. It's not going to go well. And so now we just start tiptoeing around. And this is where shit starts deteriorating. Yeah. And so, you know, again, with my husband's a very, we're very different. I am the outspoken, no filter, no bullshit, kind of crass, <laughs> bit of a hard ass, high intensity. My husband is like super chill, like easy going, people pleasing, like nice guy, you know, he's like that. And so I'm the one who has to really watch what I'm saying to him because he pays attention to tone and all. He's very sensitive. Oh, yeah. I totally get that because I'm the reactor. And that's the thing is it's learning how to respond, not just immediately reacting. And that's right. been hard because I learned the way that I respond um, or react, I should say, very much came from how I was brought up, which is like I would get snapped at. And so when I get high stress, I, st I like blow a gasket. And yeah. 
it, I have needed to temper that. And what I really appreciate about my wife is the fact that she will set the boundary. She'll be like, there's no reason for you to talk to me like that. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. whatever it was, was just so irrelevant for me to be upset about, but I was like heightened about something anyway. And so I just responded inappropriately. And I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. Like I had to step outside for a minute. I was talking to myself to try to be like, rationalize this, Nikki, like you are behaving poorly, be a better human. But it, it really, I think part of what makes the communication good and it's so essential is that both people are willing to be accountable also because you have to own the parts that make somebody else uncomfortable. And like you said, everybody's feelings are valid and whether or not you agree with them, like you should still try to honor that and help them feel safe and help them feel like they can trust you with their emotions. Because if they don't, then as you said, you're going to tiptoe around. You're not going to say the things you mean or the things that you feel, and then your needs aren't going to be met. And it's like, if we really just come back to that, are your emotional needs being met? You need to have a partner. You need to have people in your life, friends, family, whoever you have relationships with, who are going to sit in the discomfort of discussing the things that are frustrating or stressful and allow you and them to process it in their own way. And sometimes you have to come back to it and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's being accountable is so important. And, you know, I still get triggered by my nine-year-old stuff. Right. But I am, I am aware enough to call myself on my own shit and I'll say, Hey honey, you know what? I'm so sorry. I take that back. I shouldn't have said that. And this is why I got triggered and I can be responsible for that. And you mm-hmm. that, right. But what I hear a lot of is I said I was a shitty person because he was a shitty person. And then he's like, well, I was a shitty person because you didn't. And so it's this never ending ping pong game of who started it. And when it really, it doesn't matter if both people are being responsible for their end of things. And just now there's space for compassion and forgiveness. And then you know what? We were both shitty to each other. Can we just end this? And sometimes with me and my husband, that's how it goes. Is like, we'll argue about something so dumb. Exactly. We play around like food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It happens when people get hangry in our house too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this point where I just, after about five minutes and I can feel us like we're in replay mode, I just have to say, honey, can we just agree to disagree? And can we just end this conversation? It's not going anywhere. And honestly, it's not even that important. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you know what? Okay, we hug it out. I love you, love you too. And then we go on with our day. Mm-hmm. That's it. But yeah. most people will just keep going down that that black hole and then somehow end up with he doesn't love me, she doesn't respect me. I'm on, you know what I mean? Like all of this story created around a miscommunication or a disagreement. And it's okay to disagree. There's nothing wrong with disagreeing with each other as long as there's always respect. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious from your perspective and the couples that you've worked with, do you feel like when people are coming to you with those conversations about they they don't love me or they don't respect me, do you feel like there are some cases where that legitimizes? Because I I do feel like one of the things that I spoke about with a friend of mine, we were talking about like how we were never considered in our last relationship. Like they, our exes didn't consider us. They didn't really pay attention to the things that we were saying that we needed. And so it was like, they put all the energy into themselves. And to me, that is a lack of respect in the relationship. Yeah. You know, coaching is a little bit different from therapy. How I look at people is there's nothing wrong with them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. All that's missing 
is tools, insight, awareness, some healing work. Yeah. Do people have problems? Yeah, sure. But I don't see them as a problem. Right, right. I see the behavior as the source of the breakdown. But it's interesting you say that because a lot of times I'm trying to have these conversations with people and then the woman often will say to me, oh, so I'm the problem then. And I'm like, yes and no. I mean, you're not the problem, but you're also the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because here's the thing. If there's two people and one person says, I have a problem with this relationship. And then the other person goes, I'm happy. I'm fine. Who is the one that actually needs to really, really do the work? I mean, they both do, but there's one person who actually has the problem. Because if I go to the problem who says, you know, I'm, I'm happy. How am I going to coach them on something that's not happy other than helping them make their partner happy? But then themselves are like, I'm good. Well, it's an understanding that they have to come to, right? Because it sounds yeah. to me like if one's happy and the other one's not, that you are a key point of communication is being, something's being lost in translation, yeah. right? Right, right. But it's a very like convoluted and complex thing. And it's like, they are the problem, but they're not the problem. And it's actually the behavior that's the problem. But People don't like to go, oh, I'm the problem. It's like, but that doesn't matter. We're here to find a solution. Whoever, it doesn't matter who the problem is or right. who's bad, who's good, who's right, who's wrong. Because up until this point, clearly this whole mor- moral standpoint isn't working. So mm-hmm. let's just take the morality out of it. And well, let's just deal with what do you want? Yeah. You what know, do you want? <laughs> and that's all I care. What do you want? And then let's deal with everything That's in the way of that. That's the approach I come with. Yeah, I really love that. And I did want to remember to come back to something else you said, which was about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly because that was something I was fascinated to learn about on my own journey and to really understand that there are so many unspoken things that impact who we are, how we are, the way we behave just viscerally because of that. How do you apply that or do you apply that in your practice as a coach? Because as you said, and, and a completely fair point, I appreciate you calling that out. Because as I asked the question, I realized I was like, that maybe is like a little skewed towards therapy, right? Is it more just about raising awareness to people about how generational trauma can work if you use it in your coaching practice? Yeah. So most people, they don't even think about their childhood when they're dealing with their relationship. And what I find is oftentimes the thoughts and beliefs that someone has in relation to their relationship has nothing to do with the actual relationship. They are beliefs that started way back when. So usually I meet with, you know, I meet with her and I meet with him and I hear both sides of the story. And oftentimes they're extremely opposite. I'm like, am I talking to the right people? (laughs) You're right. But usually how it goes is, tell me how you feel. Tell me about the thoughts that you have. And they tell me, and I'll ask them, when was the first time you ever felt that way? And they'll say, oh, probably in my high school years. Okay, go back a little farther than that. Tell me about your parents. And so oftentimes when they start to share what their childhood has, that their childhood was like, now it can actually connect this thing that they're dealing with in the present to this thing that wasn't healed as a child. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have this one client. She is mixed. She's African-American and I think her dad was Dutch or something. Anyway, when she was 16, her mom kicked her out 
and she was homeless. I think she was even 14, I think, when she was homeless. She, her mom was part of a Jehovah's Witness, I believe, and something with the church. Anyway, so she got basically kicked out and she was on all, all alone. Fast forward, she's become now Miss Independent, right? I don't need nobody. Anyway, fast forward, she gets married and she meets and she has a baby. Her husband is Caucasian. Wonderful man. He's like a firefighter. Lovely man. Anyway, he the baby's born and she's telling me that they're close to divorce. And I'm asking her, okay, what happened? And she says, he doesn't have my back. Okay. So tell me what happened. So she tells me this story and she tells me the story of his friends, her husband's friends came to visit the baby when it was born. And like a lot of babies, when they come out of the womb, they're funny colors. Sometimes they're really light. Sometimes they're really dark. Sometimes they're purple, whatever. So anyway, so this baby comes and one of his friends make a comment. And the comment was something like, your baby's really dark. So in her mind, what she made it mean was that the baby wasn't his. For him, he was like, okay, whatever, my baby's dark. And he didn't say anything about it. And the fact that he didn't say anything about it is what she is furious about. So he has no clue. And he had no clue. He's like, I didn't think that saying nothing was going to upset her. Like I just, someone said your baby's dark and I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. But in her mind, she's like, he should have stood up for us. He should have like, that was insulting. And so now they're getting divorced because of this. Like really? But, you know, when talking to her and finding out what happened with her life as a child and how she felt abandoned and that her mom didn't fight for her, I'm like, oh, so this is a wound from way back from her mom that is now showing up in her marriage. And But she couldn't see it. No. She couldn't. But those are a lot of the stories I see is that people just cannot see. They just, all they do is they feel, they feel, 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 and they go, Oh, that must be the reason rather than what they need to do is go inwards. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because there's such a balance between intellectualizing your emotions and feeling your emotions. And part of what I didn't realize until it really came forward in therapy for me was that I always would have categorized myself as a pretty emotionally emotional person capable of communicating them, but I would do it very objectively. I would, I could Mm -hmm. tell you how I was feeling. Totally. I could tell you how I was feeling and I could tell you that I was upset and I could express that I was upset, but to actually sit with the feeling in my body and let myself acknowledge what that meant, why that was, I, it was years into my therapy where this happened. And I was like, shit, that's a thing. Like, man, like I really thought I was ahead of the game here. And it's like, no, I mean, yeah, sure. You can identify your emotions and you can speak about those emotions, but are you letting yourself acknowledge them? And like really give yourself the chance to feel them and to your point, inquire why you're feeling them or yeah. what could you do to regulate your nervous system so you don't feel them in and just constantly you're in like a mode of trauma response. You know, it goes so far beyond just like the moments that we're in sessions, whether that's with a coach or a therapist or whatever. It's like you have to make those learnings part of your daily practice as a human being to really have that consistency and the ability to work through those harder moments. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about regulating because there's two things that you said that I really loved. Number one is about the regulation, but also 
the feeling of it, but also knowing that it is, it's part of us, but it's not part of us. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I find too many people are either emotionless or like on the other spectrum where they just feel it all and they put so much emphasis and significance into emotions. And I think we sometimes need to remind ourselves that emotions are just, they're just emotions. Like we could just see a, a TV commercial and then have an emotion that triggers us. And I think that we need to just have some perspective about that. And like you're saying, having the awareness and the, the intellectual piece, but also the, the emotional piece and just being able to understand all of that. And I feel like a lot of us, well, we were never taught. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Nobody told right? us we should. No. How, how, like, how do you feel? Is it okay to feel? I think this whole being okay to feel is actually quite new for us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, before, like, so much shame don't cry. Yeah. Right. Don't cry. Don't show you're upset. But, but, but now it's like, okay, now we're allowed to. So I think we're now just starting to learn and allowing ourselves. Cause I think the beauty and the benefit of feeling things is the more that we push it off, the more we deny, the more we resist the more it's going to compound and really screw us up. Yeah. Physically, emotionally, mentally. That's why depression exists. That's why people are having cancer and heart attacks because we're not taking care of our heart and our mind, all of the things, because it's all connected, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the other piece I wanted just to add to that is if we're in a shitty place emotionally, what I usually coach my clients on, especially if it's coming from a place of resentment, is I ask them the question, what is the impact on your life? What is the impact on you? What is the impact in your marriage? What is the impact on your family? When you feel this way, when you feel that that shitty feeling, that the frustration, the overwhelm, the worry, the all of it, what's the impact? And when they can get the impact of it, oh yeah, I'm not a great parent. I'm not focused. I'm distracted. I'm cranky. When they can get the impact of that negative way of being, now change is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super insightful, Janelle. I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's a great way to round out the episode. I really enjoyed this conversation. I love your approach to just the discussion overall, but I really admire the way that you've, as you said, looked inward and decided to make the changes for yourself because it's really inspiring. It speaks a lot to, I think, many people who have had moments of feeling stuck, whether that is in our career, that's in a relationship or just in life itself. And the only way to move past those moments or through those moments is to really assess your part in it. And I feel like in this conversation, you've so well articulated those moments where you have to challenge yourself a little bit more and be willing to be uncomfortable because it's not, you know, that isn't forever. The discomfort doesn't last. And something that I constantly say is that I would rather be uncomfortable for a brief moment in time than uncomfortable in perpetuity. So like, if I know I've got to confront a shitty situation, I'm just going to do it because I don't want to sit with that anxiety waiting for it to unfold. You know, I really appreciate what you're doing and just your overall energy that you brought to the conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. This was a pleasure. I would love if you could share um, where people could find out more about your services and just overall, if there's anywhere that is a good place for them to find you on social. Yeah, for sure. I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram, but my website is saveourmarriage.ca. Okay, cool. 
And yeah, I offer both couples work, but you know, half of my clients are just people who are ready to take on another chapter in their life. They're ready to elevate. They're ready to up level. They know that they want more in life. They just don't know how to get there. They just need, they need a Sherpa and they need a fun, no nonsense, no sugar added kind of Sherpa who is like really goal oriented. I really love talking about goals. Because I think when we have purpose, when we have something in our focus that we can really just zone in on, whether that's making more money or losing 20 pounds or saving a marriage, when we're that committed to that and we have someone behind us saying, hey, you're not going to fail. It's going to be okay. You're not going to die. Right? Yeah. And they're way more willing to take chances. They're way more willing to look at the fears that they're dealing with because they know that someone's got their back. And I do this with all my love and the passion that I have in the world and also my experience. And so I think that's what makes me a really fucking great coach is that I'm like, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I'm not just just words coming out of my mouth because I learned it in some course. This is life. Yeah. It's lived experience that can't be, that can't be undervalued. It's super important to know that you have not only the compassion, as you pointed out, but the empathy that can go with that because you've walked it. And even just in this conversation, you've spoken to certain things just hit so close to home for me, Janelle. And I feel very lucky that we were able to have this time together. And I think that as you're going on this journey, it'll be really exciting to see where you head to next. Yeah. Why I do this work is because our world is hurting. Our children are suffering because we as parents haven't healed what we need to heal in order to not pass on the, whatever you want to call it, baggage that we had to deal with as children. And that's why I do what I do. Yeah, of course. I don't want people to get divorced, but it's for me, it's so much deeper than that. It's, you know, my client telling me that her 10 year old just told her that she never wants to get married at 10 because of what she's seen in her parents. And so here we are creating a world where Love is like no longer the thing. It's now about money. It's now about success because that there, you don't have to put your heart at risk, right? So we're choosing to live these very lonely lives because we're so afraid to love. We're so afraid to get hurt. But I'm saying, no, love is so worth it. I totally agree with you, Janelle. Love is so worth it. You're speaking to my soul with that statement. I feel like as much as there is going on in the world right now, I still have a very firm belief that most of humanity is good. And what you're doing is you are making sure that people are able to see the humanity in themselves and the humanity in others. And that's just a really beautiful, beautiful thing that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that part. I'm so glad that you ended on that. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. And as Janelle said, if you want to learn more, you can visit saveourmarriage.ca and check out more of her services and content there. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, we got this chair? No, that's the 
my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.